This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. Uh, Rebecca, you and I are going to talk about an interview you did and then pitch in for David uh, to set up the one that he did. But first, let's uh, talk about your conversation with Zoe Kazan, who is a star of She Said, a movie that I saw and texted you after, uh, saying that it had some real working mom shit in it. Um, (laughs) And I am assuming that you guys got into that in your conversation. Oh, yeah. I mean, she actually tweeted about it right before the film played at New York Film Fest because basically, you know, when she was digging into playing Jody Cantor, the New York Times reporter, um, you know, she was asking her because her husband is also a very successful reporter. They have kids. She's like, how did you do this all? And Jody was basically like, my mom had to help during this time. And turns out Zoe basically went through the same thing because her own partner, Paul Dano, was filming Fablemans at the same time she was filming She Said, and they have a four-year-old daughter. So they also had to do basically the same thing and have her parents come in and help. So it was very present in her mind, I think, how you sort of balance career when it's on this level and um, being a, a mom. Yeah, I saw that she also tweeted at another film journalist who noticed the stickers on Jodi Cantor's laptop as she's in the office is just very obviously what a kid would do. And she said that was a, a detail she took directly from Jodi because Jodi Cantor and Mick and Tui, who are played by uh, Zoe and Carrie Mulligan in the film, were really involved in this movie, um, which is not necessarily what happens when real people are being played in the movie. And I feel like it adds a lot to the authenticity of what they're going through as they're um, you know, reporting the Harvey Weinstein story that changed everything. Yeah, she really, it sounds like, got to sit down with Jody, and they had a lot in common already. They're both um, obviously New York-based, and uh, their kids had gone to the same preschool, And and but she grilled her, like, what water bottle do you bring to the office? What no- type of notebook do you use? You know, like, really got into those details, and I think you can definitely see that on screen. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear more of your conversation with Zoe Kazan. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. 
the fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company, and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment, and if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. I'm so excited to welcome Zoe Kazan to the podcast today. She stars as Jody Cantor in She Said, which will, is currently in theaters. Uh, Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I loved this film. Obviously, I'm a huge journalism nerd, and I think the way it captures journalism is so great, the way it captures working mothers, and also, of course, the way it you know tells the story of really reporting out the Harvey Weinstein story. So tell me how the script first came to you and, and what you thought of it when you're reading it. Yeah. Um, so Carrie Mulligan, who plays the other reporter, and I have been friends for 14 years And we have a really close mutual friend who, uh, in the spring of 2021, was like, oh, Carrie's going to do this movie about the reporters who who broke the Weinstein story. And I was so excited for her. I felt like it was such a perfect fit. And I never thought, like, oh, there was a a second reporter. I never thought, like, I should be asking someone about that. Um, And then my agents called me in a really cute meeting with Maria Schrader about about this movie. Um, I very quickly read the book, which kind of blew me away. Like, I think even though I have friends who are journalists, I think I had some sort of like naive uh, vision that as soon as an investigative journalist had the truth, they could publish it. Like, And the amount of um, verification and evidence that they need needed in order to be able to publish this in the Times, meet, meet the journalistic standards of the Times, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, they knew so much before they could publish. Yeah. And, and other reporters had really tried to break this story, but it, it was just so difficult, which is what we can see in the film or, or you could yeah. read in the book. And um, I'm curious, you know, because you are also a screenwriter, when you're reading a script, what are you, what makes you know it's, it's a good script? Well, this script, Rebecca Linkwitz, I think, did an incredible job adapting their book. You know, Jody and Megan's book, she said, is full of incredible detail about their reporting, but it's not really about them. You know, I don't think that they um, felt that comfortable positing themselves as the subjects of a piece. But Rebecca interviewed them and and really brought out so much about their personal lives, which is in the film. And to me, it's it's such a full portrait, like you said, of, of what it is to be a working mother in a kind of like portrait of womanhood as a whole. Like you, you see it with the sources and you see it with, with Jody and Megan. You know, there's just so much pace to it, too. Like, Carrie always says, like, um, it's like a marker of how good the writing is, that it feels like a thriller, even though we know what what happens. We, we know that they published the story and we know everything that came came after they published it. 
Um, I don't know. I just think she did a sensational job. Yeah. And so tell me, once you had signed on, what did you need from Jody to play this role? You know, how much time did you ask of her and what were you sort of looking to understand about her? Jody and Megan were incredibly generous with Carrie and I, you know, sort of opening up their lives and making themselves, I think, really vulnerable to us. Um, I can't imagine having someone play me uh, with that, the uncanniness of that feeling. Um, Especially when you're, like I said, you know, constitutionally and and in terms of your job, not used to putting yourself in the the center of a story. Jody and I met for dinner in Brooklyn. And immediately I was like, oh, this is a person I could know in my life, you know, already. She just seemed really familiar to me. We have, we have a lot of people in common. Our kids went to the same preschool, like, um, but you know, Carrie and I had decided very early on we weren't going to try to do an imitation of these people, that that would be distracting from the honesty of the story and um, that we wanted to sort of just try to capture their essence. Watching Jody listen was a huge part of my preparation, getting a sense of how she is across the table. And then I asked her just a bunch of nosy questions like, you know, what do you bring into an interview? Are you using a recording device? Are you using a notebook Um, how do you prepare? (laughs) What kind of water bottle do you bring to work? (laughs) Um, Where do you buy your shoes? Who puts dinner on the table? How does that happen? Who helps you with childcare? Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the addition of their life balancing sort of being a work, a mom and a journalist, I think, is definitely part of the story that struck me, obviously, as a mom as well. But um, it's something you had also tweeted about, sort of finding that balance while you were shooting this. And and I'm curious how that played into performing this role while you also were sort of having to figure out that balance at the same time. Yeah. You know, I, I was cast, and she said, a few weeks after Paul was cast in The Fablemans, and they shot concurrently. He was shooting um, the Fablemans on the West Coast while I was filming in New York. And we didn't, like, we started filming on the same day. And <laughs> I, I didn't really know how we were going to do that. It seemed like an impossible um, lift. Uh, we have an incredible nanny, but she's in grad school and can't, like, you know, be with my kid all the time. Um, nor would we want that. And my my parents really pitched in. They really, um, they moved across the country. They moved in with us for, for months and, and made it possible. There's no minute that I took that for granted or any of the childcare that we have. I think, um, you know, when I asked Jody how it's not in the movie, but at the same time that they were breaking the story, Ron, her husband was breaking in a, a really important story and had to travel for that story as well. And I was like, how did you do it? And she said, you know, my mom and dad really pitched in and it made me laugh because we were experiencing such similar things, such parallel things. Um, I don't know, for me, it's like, you know, Carrie and I rewatched all the president's men in in preparation for this film and also just for fun. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, the most you need to see of their personal lives in there is just like a messy bachelor apartment in the background. Like they could just concentrate solely on the story. And I feel like it's, it's like an, it's like a shadow story. It's like the untold part of all of our life, especially because I think the lives of women in in the middle of their life 
aren't usually put on screen. We get so many coming of age stories, so many teenage girls and and girls in their early 20s. And it was so meaningful to me to get to put that on screen. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, you and Carrie have known each other for a long time, but was there anything the two of you sort of had to work on or delve into for this dynamic between these two characters that felt different or, or new? Yeah. I mean, you know, we know each other so well. And these two women, Jody and Megan, were really only getting to know each other over the course of this. Their relationship was growing over over this investigation. They, they didn't know each other at all when they started working together on this. They had, um, you know, been colleagues, but ha- had barely spoken to each other. I think we both felt like a kind of like, oh, we have to really calibrate, you know, how much we're using the same brain in these scenes and and sort of tell that journey. But it was incredibly useful to me to have someone I knew so well, even playing scenes where we weren't supposed to know each other that well. It felt like, oh, I have this like truth barometer here. Um, she won't let me get away with any, any um, you know, quote unquote acting. <laughs> and was there a certain scene that felt maybe more difficult to navigate the emotions of the tone for. I think there are so many that are so powerful with your character. You know, when she's talking to that woman's husband on the lawn, I found that one to be really striking. Or, you know, when she gets the call, um, finally, that someone is going to go on the record. And so how would you sort of approach scenes that sort of had that emotional weight to them? You know, those two scenes that you brought up were actually, I think, in some ways easier for me because those are scenes where... Jody is allowing, like, there are cracks showing. And that feels like there's more of herself present in a way in those moments. I think it was harder for me to prepare for the scenes where she's speaking to the survivors, especially because there are so many of those conversations that happen in the film. And it really felt like, you know, for Jody, each of these sources was incredibly different and required incredibly different preparation. And they all meant something different to the investigation. When you're filming scene after scene like that, they can start to all feel the same. And so really working to make sure that that I was really present in every scene and that, you know, the quality of my listening matched what hers would have been. You know, you can't you can't express too much emotion. You don't want to step on the toes of your source. You want to let them talk, you know, it was all in the script, but there's a temptation to start to tune something out or, um, especially because the subject matter is so weighty. And we talked about this a little bit before, but how did you sort of navigate the weight of this story as you were shooting or as you were preparing? Because it is, you know, because you know, this is about real women and real survivors. How did you carry that with you? First of all, we had so many of the survivors contributing to the film in one way or another, either acting in it or consulting on it. And that felt like a blessing. Like, it gave me confidence that we were doing things the the, the right way, doing right by them to the best of our ability. Um, we had a therapist on call uh, that the producers had arranged. I spoke with her a few times um, in mostly to help me prepare to speak, to be in a scene with an actual survivor so that I would be able to 
provide uh, as much support as possible in those situations. And then, you know, honestly, just having the, you know, it's like one of the places where work-life balance actually helps you out. Like having the balance of going home and being with my kid and, you know, having her freak out. She wants goldfish and not, you know, cheddar goldfish or whatever, (laughs) cheddar bunnies, like, you know, whatever the thing is. Like it felt to me like that was like really grounding and helped me put something away and not take it home with me so much. Yeah. And, and Paul was recently also on this podcast and obviously the two of you are sort of going through the release of films at the same time, which is, it sounds like it's pretty unusual for your timing. And how do you sort of protect your family life during when such a busy time like that, along with a new addition, it sounds like. <laughs> so yeah. That, yeah. We have, a, <laughs> we have a four week old. Yeah, um, it is a lot at once. We did not plan this timing. <laughs> Um, sometimes things just happen. Um, you know, well, first of all, my parents are here again with us, making this possible again. You know, my, I mean, I just, I have to say like, you know, when I was like 32 maybe and starting to think about like, when am I going to be able to have a family? I was talking with my mom about it and I was like, I just find it really daunting. Like, I don't know how this is ever going to be possible for me. And um, our lives are so strange. Like, you know, we we won't know what work is coming. And then two weeks later, you're like on a plane somewhere. And how, how do you do that as a parent? And my mom, who did not have a parent who was flying across the country to help her be a working mother, promised me that she would help me. And I think I thought she was just trying to get a grandchild out of me. Um, (laughs) she's like, I'll do whatever it takes. (laughs) Exactly. But she's really like held that promise. And I truly don't think we'd be able to do what we're doing right now without them. It's really strange. It's really wonderful. It's like a, you know, plentitude of blessings over here. And at the same time, I'm also like, like my kid, my four-year-old is coming home with every preschool germ imaginable. And like, we're in all of these Q and A's and things like that, where I'm like, sorry, I can't shake your hand. I have a newborn at home and I'm like trying to stay awake, keep the baby away from my four-year-old so that she doesn't infect him with her germs. And, you know, it's just like, oh, here we are in the middle of our juggle and, and let me go talk to you right now for this (laughs) podcast. I don't know how you, I don't think I got out of bed for the first five weeks. So the fact that you are just doing the interviews and juggling it all is pretty pretty impressive. <laughs> Again, I, I really do feel like, you know, my mom, like making me chicken soup and, you know, changing my baby's diaper. It's just like, yeah, it's the greatest blessing. Um, I did want to ask you about sort of what's next, even though you're really in the thick of it right now, but I know you were, you're working on a limited series based on East of Eden. Where are you in the process of writing that? Um, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I I got hired to write this in March of 2020, basically, and I've been so I've been working on it for two plus years now. I have basically the whole thing written, and we're just putting it together. Um, but it's been like the greatest joy for me. I never had a daily writing practice. I was always 
fitting my writing and around my acting job. So I got really good at, or I got really proficient at um, writing a first draft really quickly. I got used to rewriting in like little snippets here and there. And then this pandemic hit around exactly around the same time as I started working on this. And suddenly, like, you know, we didn't have childcare for the first year of that pandemic, but we were giving each other three hours a day to work. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time, but I knew I had time every day. And it totally transformed my writing practice. And I'm so proud of what we're making. And it really has been, like, one of the greatest creative joys of my life. It's it's a book I've loved since I was, like, 14. And um, I just can't believe I've gotten to, to work on this. And obviously you have a family connection with your grandfather having directed the earlier film. Did that make you more interested in doing this or less? Or how do you navigate that? Yeah. Um, I mean, if anything, it should have made me trepidatious. I have really tried not to mix family and work. You know, I think I would feel differently if that adaptation were closer to the book. I don't know if you've ever read Steinbeck's novel, Yep, I loved it. It's like so sprawling and it takes you from the Civil War into the First World War. And the the 1955 film really only covers the last like third or fourth of the book. There's a whole other like wealth of stuff in there. For me, my entry point as a teenager was in Kathy, who is the sort of female lead of the book. In the movie, you meet her as like a matriarch. You meet her as a person, you know, squarely in middle age. And in the book, you get this whole portrait of a person, a really unconventional person. And she was sort of my way in. So I'm really excited to get to tell a different version of that story. And that's the role that Florence Pugh is currently attached to? That's exciting. That's right. Um, Yeah, I think telling it as a limited series will give it a lot of room, which sounds... Like a great way yeah, to do I don't think I could ever adapt it as a movie. Like the version I'm interested in is the big sprawl of it. You know, I think it's it's about three generations of a family, and I don't know how you tell that in two or three hours. Yeah. Well, is there before we wrap up? Is there sort of a lasting impression for you of she said something from this experience that you'll sort of take on, you know, to your next project and your next one? It's the first time that I've really felt like I had an acting partner on a movie. Like, I've felt that on stage before. But as soon as Carrie and I knew we were cast in this, we started working on it together. We would Zoom from New York to England and and sort of break down the script together and talk through it. And um, it felt like we were making something together. Like, it was this thing that we were building. Um And on set, I felt like we like quickly ditched our second dressing room and and shared a a dressing room the way that we had when we were in our early 20s and and first met doing a play together. And we would just go in there and run our lines and brainstorm. And, you know, we had read that um, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford learned all of each other's lines so they could kind of like speak over each other. And so we had learned all each other's lines and so we were running things backwards and forwards. And if I was in a scene without Carrie and I needed help, I would text her. And it just felt like this sort of like group project. Um, and the 
the movie is also about, in a way, like collective action, like the power of sisterhood. And it made me feel sort of like sad for all the other times that, you know, at least in my career, it's often been like I'm I'm one of the only women or I'm the only woman in a project. It made me really want to make more of my own work so that I can, I mean, have this experience again, you know, it just felt like it should be setting a standard for myself. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) So now we're going to hear the conversation that David Canfield had with Hong Chow, who is having really an exceptional fall. Um, She's in The Menu, the Searchlight Pictures movie that's um, doing really well, especially box office now. And she's also going to be in The Whale, uh, a movie that's been all over the festival circuit. And you've probably heard about for Brendan Fraser's uh, really towering central performance. I haven't seen The Whale yet, but Rebecca, you have, and I think you have, you you can report that back that Hong Chow really is worth talking about. Yeah, I mean, everyone has been talking about Brendan's performance, but I think Hong really has to uh, stand out in the scenes she's in with him, and she really delivers. I just think she's sort of hit it out of the park in everything she's in, and and she's definitely someone to pay attention to. So I was curious to hear more about um, how she sort of found this character in The Whale, who is someone who's also dealing with grief. Yeah, and I know you haven't seen The Menu yet, Rebecca, but she's really outstanding in, in a role that, like many things in The Menu, is not worth um, spoiling. But she has this very stern, kind of terrifying presence uh, that only grows as a film goes on. And then also, uh, it's not coming out till next year, but she was in the Kelly Reichardt movie Showing Up, which was at the New York Film Festival um, opposite Michelle Williams. And she's really, like, warm and funny and so different from her character in The Whale and that. So she's so um, versatile, and it's really exciting to get her get to see her do all of this. So let's hear David's conversation with Hong Chao. Okay, uh, Hong Chao, we have a lot of projects to discuss. Um, you're you're everywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a really good 2021. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you did it right. <laughs> <laughs> it was not by design. It, it was all, it just kind of came to me, and I was as surprised with each one. My great luck. So, I mean, we'll, we'll go through all of them. We've got um, The Whale, which is uh, out in December. We've got The Menu showing up, the Kelly Reichardt film, more on the way. I- I'm curious to start, given that these are such a range of characters that you get to play, um, which is always exciting, but walk me through, I suppose, this period of like these offers coming in. What kind of stuff were you looking for? What struck you about these particularly? I mean, obviously, they're great projects, but I imagine it's like, you know, 
there's you've got something in mind and then the stuff comes your way. So how did that align? Yeah. Um I actually wasn't looking for anything. I I even struggled with saying yes to them once they did um kind of show up in my life. Um I let's see, so this was 2021, I had just had a baby, my first child, and I was totally looking forward to staying at home and just huffing baby feed all day and not working. And there was COVID. It was also the height of COVID. So I really was not looking to get out of my bubble at all. And so January 2021, my agent says, here's the script for Darren Aronofsky's next project. It's based off of a play. Um, have you ever heard of it? And because I live in LA or I lived in LA, um, I hadn't. And I, I read it and I thought, oh gosh, (laughs) this is, (laughs) this is a lot. Um, and it's great, but I don't know if this is for me right now in my life. Um, and so I just, that's what I said and I let it go. And, you know, he, my agent pestered me about it again, like a little later, he was like, I, <laughs> he's like, it's Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> I was like, yes, I know. But, uh, but, uh, I just had a baby and I don't really want to go to work right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I read it again and I think what got me to come around to it was just the story. I, um, I really sympathized and empathized with uh, the main character's journey, and I, I thought it was so heartbreaking that he had lost all of this time with his daughter, his only daughter, and I was just so sad, and, and I just understood that that ticking clock that he was feeling, you know, because I was... Mm-hmm holding this baby and I had just had a child for the first time at 41. And even though I was like really excited and happy, part of me was also lamenting that I wouldn't get to know her for Mm. as long as I wanted to. And I don't know, I guess that's what kind of made me say yes to uh, throwing my hat in the ring. Um, Oh, the other thing was that, you know, the character wasn't written specifically for an Asian person. And so... Mm I just thought, oh, there's just, there's just like no way. There's so many other people, you know, like so many other great people who are also more famous than me, who could, who could, who could also play this character. And so I just, I just thought, ah, there's just really no, no chance. And um, I made an audition tape. Oh, I had also gotten used to not auditioning. (laughs) (laughs) That was was another thing. yeah, ever since downsizing, I've been really lucky where all of the jobs that I took were just basically offered to me because the writer, creator, or director had just seen me in something mm. prior to that. And uh, I've just been really lucky and just, you know, haven't really had to, to, to tap dance for anything. So when this came around, I was like, I'm, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can properly... Um, digest the material and and come up with something that would be worthy of putting on tape and having, you know, the Darren Aronofsky possibly seeing it. So, um, yeah, it all worked out. (laughs) It did. It did. It's interesting, too, because I was really struck by your first scene, your first moments in the movie, because 
You and Brendan have this immediate, incredibly naturalistic rapport where I'm like, you know, you, I can see the love, the connection that these characters have. I feel it. And it's, there's just no denying it, which especially for, you know, a movie adapted from a play that has those stagey conventions at times, it is really important. Um, I imagine that came from a certain connection between you and Brendan that was able to come onto the screen. I love Brendan Fraser. It's it's funny. I, I had never actually seen one of his movies. I had never seen, um, what is it, The Mummy, mm-hmm. George of the Jungle, Encino Man. Uh, <laughs> what else <laughs> am I missing here? I, uh, you know, you gods and Monsters. You got a gods lot, and yeah. Monsters. Um, I, I just hadn't, I don't know where I was. I'm definitely in the right age group to be one of his super fans, but he just didn't hold, um, I didn't have any sort of... Um, adolescent uh, connection or fandom to him prior to meeting him. I just got to meet him as he is at the present. And that so rarely happens, I think, because, you know, I, I have gotten to work with some really great people who are very famous, but for some reason I've known too much about them prior to working with them. I because can, I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, um, and in this case, I didn't really know anything about Brendan, um, and so I just got to meet him uh, as he as he was, as he is, and he was just so warm and just sweet and lovable and kind, and those are just qualities that just exudes from him. You know, mm-hmm. he he doesn't really he doesn't really have to do too much <laughs> for for you to want to just. Uh, hug him. So, um, you know, our first meeting was at the table read and he knew that I had a baby. So he had a little gift bag for me. And Mm. I just thought that was really sweet and thoughtful. And I guess the way to my heart as an actor is just to be really open and generous with your, um, fellow cast members. Um, and that's, that's how he was at the table read. And it was just it was just really easy. Hmm. The contrast, I suppose, of the easiness is you're working through some emotionally intense material. Like you said, when you read it, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what was it like working through that, uh, especially when you do have that kind of trust and connection with an actor? We had three weeks of rehearsal prior to hmm. starting uh, shooting on the film. And it was a really good time for the actors to just get everything out of our systems in terms of just being bad, you know, and not saying the words out loud for the first time and uh, putting the words with movement and and getting it in our bodies. Um, It it felt a little strange because it it wasn't quite uh, like a traditional rehearsal because um, so much of it was geared towards technical blocking. So even before mm. we felt like we had really um, gotten a chance to to emotionally explore the, the, the text or, or our characters, <laughs> Darren was already like, um, can you be more over here as opposed to over here? And so it felt a little restrictive at first, but you know, it all made sense uh, once I saw the movie, how specific our, our, our placements were um, mm-hmm. on, on the set because he, he the guy knows what he's doing <laughs> <laughs> so 
So we've learned. <laughs> um, it felt restrictive at first because it's like, well, I don't know if I want to be over there yet, Darren, you know. And yeah. um, But it, it was – you can't really – argue with uh, somebody who who has a very thoughtful uh, game plan of, of how he wants the, the film to look. Um, part of me was very curious. I guess another reason why I said yes to the project was because when I read the script, it didn't seem like something I would imagine Darren Aronofsky would direct. Like the, the it, it just seemed like a strange story for him of all people to direct. And so I was curious to see what he would do with it and how he would put his signature on it. And he absolutely did. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I was there to bear witness to, to his, um, to his process and his work. I'm, I'm also curious about the, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, educational aspect of the film for you. I've covered the movie a bit. I've spoken with Brendan and Darren, and, you know, I've learned a ton just about, you know, their work with the Obesity Action Coalition and terminology and how to speak about what this character is dealing with. And you're playing a caregiver in this film and who's so enmeshed in his world. What did you learn about that? What was your kind of exposure to really the more educational part of what Darren and and co we're bringing forward? Um, well, I worked with the, um, our movement coach, mm -hmm. but I know she, she went by a different term okay. <laughs> than movement coach. Um, but she worked with, uh, Brendan and also with me in terms of where I should be and how I, I could help support him in a way that was accurate, you know, yeah, she was just really helpful and just made me think more about um, physically how to dance with Brendan as my partner. Um, and in terms of, uh, I, I never actually spoke with the Obesity Action Coalition um, in the way that Brendan did. I kind of got information through them secondhand, you know, once mm -hmm. I was on set, it was like a lot through Darren because he's just really good at articulating um, those things. Um, and then I think, I think the script itself just had so much love for the character that I didn't feel like we were, um, you know, encroaching on any dangerous territory. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, you, you mentioned Darren uh, and, at times specific directions. I'm curious how that would compare to someone like Mark Mylod uh, on a movie like The Menu, <laughs> which is uh, a very different brand of, of maybe controlled chaos. Yeah. Um, when I read the script for The Menu, you know, Elsa kind of pops in and out. And so I thought, oh, this is nice. I'll just, um, I won't be there the whole time. And I'll just like come in and film my parts and just <laughs> get to enjoy my family at home. No, I was there all day, every day. Oh, really? <laughs> um, because, because he had to shoot 360 like all the time, basically with the amount of, um, because it's again also another movie that's mainly in one on one set, mm -hmm. and I forget how many tables there were. I think there were six six tables. I think six. Eleven eleven diners. Um, eleven or twelve diners. Um, 
So yeah, there there was a lot of coverage to shoot, and the only way that Mark could do that was if we were all doing everything all at once, and then um, Peter would just move around with the camera and try to capture as much as he could, because there was a good portion that was scripted, but then there were other parts where Mark asked us to improvise, and so he would try to capture some of that as well. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it was... <laughs> that the that one the the direction on on the menu was just keep going keep going stay in the scene just keep going <laughs> love it i i've loved learning over the years about like you know your contributions to your characters like on Watchmen, i know you brought in some pretty specific ideas so when you get that kind of freedom with a character like this um what are you bringing to the table i mean even her look is so specific and fun in this yeah, I, I, it's funny that you bring up Watchmen because I felt I was in the same situation with the menu. Where I felt like I really had to convince um, Mark to let me look <laughs> the way I looked in the movie. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> when I read the script for the menu, I was in Portland shooting, uh, showing up, and mm-hmm. um, and the movie, the script, the story was set in the Pacific Northwest. And so I thought, oh, it would be cool if, um, you know, I could kind of bring some Pacific Northwest funkiness (laughs) to this character. Like if she had like cool hair or, you know, just just some sort of like edge to her. And um, I sent some, some inspiration photos and it was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> what are you sending me? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> we want her to look very um, plain and uh, just blend into the background. Uh, just very plain hair, very plain, boring clothes. And I was like, what? <laughs> No, 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 no. So it was it was a lot of back and forth. And thankfully, um, Amy Westcott, who was the costume designer, who also happens to be Mark Mylod's wife, oh, uh, was okay. on my side about <laughs> about this. And um, we we played around with uh, different costumes. And the one that we landed with was the most visually impactful and uh, you know it kind of went against what initially um mark and also the writers were were thinking um but i think we were right in the end <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely were <laughs> it's like hong why what about the script made you think you should bleach your eyebrows <laughs> i was like i don't know that's what i saw when i read it mark <laughs> Just got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Trust the instinct. It, it reminded me of um, Inherent Vice in a way of like you really popping in this incredibly big, colorful ensemble where there's a lot of personalities to navigate and you're firmly among them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that um, audition very clearly. Um, I was super nervous because I was such a big fan of... Paul Thomas Anderson, and there was no script. You just had to go in and improvise. Um, 
but she she did uh, the casting director did give um, like a couple of pages of some scenes to like quickly read over and just sort of come up with something and I was thinking oh my god <laughs> um, first of all the writing tension is like so yeah. <laughs> colorful. You know, <laughs> I didn't know where to where to to go with it, and then also um, I didn't know how to be sexy, and so I was like, "This mm. is this is what I can do. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is all I got. This is right. this is how I can do it." Uh, and and uh, and thankfully, it, it made him laugh or something, or it tickled him. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned showing up, um, Kelly Reichardt. One of our great filmmakers. Um, yes, she is. And it's another character where you get to have some fun. There's a lot of pigeon acting, particularly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there. Uh, I mean, I think I would say almost all of her movies feature some sort of animal, right? Um, yes, they do. In a very charming way. I feel like there's no small parts in a Kelly Reichardt movie. She somehow gives them the day players and and animals alike i feel like she gives each um person or animal that uh is a part of her movie some some special frame or a special moment um so i was tickled <laughs> that i would get to work with a pigeon uh in her movie and in, in what i think is her first comedy um yes and and my very first day meeting Michelle Williams was during pigeon training, so I will always remember oh, that. Oh, wow. <laughs> she caught you mid. <laughs> deep in it, deep in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did want to ask, with, with all of these projects, and you've also, I believe you're in the new Wes Anderson movie that's coming up, and on and on, I could go. It's a very exciting time. I, I'd read that after downsizing, you'd taken a little break, for, particularly from bigger projects, mainstream projects, said no to some things was there a kind of shift for you in starting to say yes to more of them between that period um I think it's easy to say yes to Darren Aronofsky and Kelly Reichardt and Wes Anderson and Mark Mylod um (laughs) (laughs) those those are pretty uh easy yeses um but the only thing that complicates it now is just uh, making sure that it still works for my family. I'm not as, yep. um, I guess, uh, so single-minded in terms of uh, my priorities. And um, I don't know. I think I'm just interested in living life. I, I It took me a while to get my career going. And then once I actually did, I kind of got to start with the very best, you know, mm-hmm. um, like Inherent Vice was my first movie and then Downsizing right. was my second movie, <laughs> you know, so. ETA and Alexander <laughs> Right. Yeah. And even, even The Whale, I think is only my fifth movie. So, you know, it's, wow. um, it's not like I have a really long resume, but it's just the people that I've been able to work with are just amazing. And I would be so lucky to even to just work with them again the second time, you know, for whatever I, however many years I have left in, in my career. Between this chunk that we talked about, you mentioned wanting to try new things. Was there anything that felt like scary new, like really just like, 
I am diving into something that I have not done before. Well, each one was so different, you know, um, with the whale, there was so much dialogue and, yeah. um, the, the script was still very much like the, the play, um, and the way we rehearsed it and, and worked our way into it was still very much, very theatrical, um, so that was an experience, and then showing up was so completely different because we shot the whale in February in upstate New York, and there was three feet of snow on the ground when I arrived. It felt cold. <laughs> it felt cold, and we were in this uh, warehouse. that That's where the set was, and we were just there every day in the dark all day long, and then to get to go to Portland in the spring and just... It felt like we were hanging out. Kelly would just joke, like, this movie shouldn't be called showing up. It should be called hanging out. <laughs> Subtitle. Or hanging out, yeah. <laughs> or hanging out. Um, and that one felt... I couldn't have anticipated how physical that role was. Um, when I was reading hmm. it on the page, it, it felt very light and funny. And my focus was on the art and being an artist and whatever yeah. that means. And so I wasn't expecting that, you know, I get to, I'd have to, um, learn how to do a tire swing and, and, <laughs> and drive a truck, a pickup truck and, and do all of this, um, art that was actually very physical. I got to spend a day with Michelle Seagray, who, um, is the artist whose work I, um, uh, copy in the movie and her work mm. is very physical because they're um, large installations and right. a lot of it is around a metal frame that she uses pipes for and she actually bends them physically with just her hands with her body she puts her body into it and so um, all of that was was very physical um, yeah it was just it had different demands. <laughs> you know, yeah. it wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of text and a lot of dialogue. And sometimes I, I, I enjoy that, you know, where you, you just get to try to sit in, in the, in the space of a character and just, um, be that person without having to, to, um, monologue. Um, and then there's other times like the whale where it's like, oh, I get this amazing monologue. Wow. But it, yeah, it, I'm really, I can go either way. I think it's just about variety and just whatever feels right uh, for the scene, for the character, for the movie. Um, I think I actually cut some of my own lines from the menu because I didn't feel like I needed to say them. And Mark was laughing and he's like you're the only actor i know who asks to cut lines I'm like well if you don't need it you know that does it for today's show we'll be back on thursday with our roundtable conversation in the meantime find us at vanityfair.com on twitter at hwd and on our own i am at katie rich and rebecca becca m ford and david you can find it david canfield 97 our editor and producer as always is brett fuchs You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. 
Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.